you know what time of the month it is when I pop up in your newsfeed. It is time for this month in sales and ailment. This time around, we have the June edition. And you'll be pleased to hear that it's not just myself this time. It hasn't ever been, but Devin has again decided to join us. Welcome, Devin. How are you today? Felix, it is great to be back here with you. I was just in New York City for two weeks doing some leadership planning and, and I ran my team offsite and it was awesome. It was so good to be there. We did a generative AI workshop. So I'm feeling Ooh. very energized and thrilled to be here today. Wow. You are such a jet setter. New York, <laughs> East Coast, West Coast. Look at me go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I never know which time zone you're in, but Judging by the background, you're back in Palm Springs, is that right? Thankfully, back in Palm Springs. It was a whirlwind, but I'm so thrilled to be home. We have so much to talk about. We have reports again. We have AI updates, which has become a staple at this month in sales enablement. We have a couple of events coming up that we want to flag. Great ways for enablers to get involved with the broader enablement community, also face-to-face -face in some cases a bunch of social bus and a book review once again. So to kick things off, I just want to take stock and really celebrate the fact that what has started as me awkwardly recording some of my mates in the industry has blossomed into a podcast that a lot of people seem to like because we are now approaching 10,000 downloads, which is great news. So it's a, a reason to celebrate. Yes. And because I saw this number pop up in my analytics, I took that as an excuse to just have a look what the most popular episodes have been since we've started the podcast. I've made a social post about this on LinkedIn. This will, of course, be included in the This Month in Sales and Aidment newsletter as well. To kick things off, the 10th most downloaded episode that we had on the State of Sales and Aidment podcast was Enablement Recruitment with Dave Lickman. And Dave, for those of you who are not familiar with his name, is a recruiter who I suspect is very busy at the moment, especially talking to high caliber sales enablement talent, because his recruitment agency doesn't just do enablement on the side, but they're solely specialized in enablement, just simply due to the fact that there's a lot of value add that recruiters that really understand the space can provide to employers, but also to talent, obviously. And Dave, in this episode, has broken down what the job market looks like. It was actually before a lot of the layoffs happened, but nonetheless, he gave some insight into the way companies are hiring at the moment and also shared some of the great resources that he provides to job seekers. So if you're interested in, or if you're looking for work in particular, I highly recommend uh, listening to this episode and possibly also reaching out to Dave if you want to have a chat. So on number nine, we have strategic talent development with Roderick Jefferson. If you don't know Roderick, do yourself a favor and just Google his name. He's one of the, I want to say, enablement OGs. He's been in the game for such a long time, and his resume is incredibly impressive. Some really big businesses that he has led major enablement functions for, including Adobe comes to mind. He has been at Salesforce as well. He's also the author of Enablement 3.0, so one of my favorite books in the enablement space. And on the podcast, he spoke about strategic talent development, specifically talking about all things training, coaching, hiring. So if you want to get those insights from one of the biggest names in enablement, please do yourself a favor and tune into that one as well. 
Well, number eight. Oh, who are those two people? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> this month in sales enablement, May edition 2022. I think that must have been one of the very first episodes that we ran. I think it was. We talked about why new hires cry. That was part of the <laughs> a report. And it was talking about the dissatisfaction when people are starting a new job. We talked about sales development as part of an interview that I ran with Mark McInnes, one of the sales trainers here in Australia, specifically focusing on sales development, book reviews, and all the good stuff that you know from us. On number seven, we have a young up-and-comer that I think has a bright future ahead of him, uh, Mike Kunkel with the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement. I'm just kidding, of course. The theme of OGs and enablement continues. Mike Kunkel, author of the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement book, and also, as some of you might know, my business partner, we have created a course based on his book that I will also share with you later on in this episode. But yeah, in this episode, I spoke to Mike about his book, the 15 building blocks of sales enablement that he covers in his book and how enablers can really adopt this holistic view in increasing the sales effectiveness for their business and ultimately the business impact that they are able to achieve. So definitely worth checking that out if you're not familiar with the building blocks of sales enablement. On number six, again, Devin and myself with this month in sales enablement, February edition, so not too long ago, really goes to show that this format has become more and more popular with the sales enablement community. So I'm glad that you guys find it useful and have downloaded the episode that much that it made it that far into the top 10. In this episode, we spoke about jobs AI will replace. So again, that was based on a report. And I was talking about that topic. We were talking about enablement salaries based on the SEC report. And again, around the business impact enablement has to achieve. On number five, we have Paul Butterfield with Enablement's Business Value. And I've spoken to some people and they said that when it comes to content on LinkedIn, they're almost sick about hearing about enablement's business impact and the need for enablement to generate business impact. Of course, it's a topic we talk a lot about. And I think... It is incredibly important because otherwise, what are we doing? You know, we're not just here to run training sessions or to look at sales analytics. We're there to actually generate business outcomes. But this episode is particularly interesting because it was actually one of the front runners where it came to that topic and that discussion around enablement's business impact. And Paul Butterfield has shared his views on why enablement needs to generate business impact and also some of the ways that he sees the work enablement does can be mapped to strategic objectives within the GTM planning. So definitely worth checking out. Paul Butterfield, again, one of the biggest names in enablement. And there's a reason, I believe, why he made it so far into the top 10. And then now number four. Wow. The third time you appear in the top 10 list, it's the wonderful Devin McDermott with her episode on stakeholder Management. I think that was actually the first episode that we recorded together, Devin. It was. And it was so much fun because stakeholders are the make or break in everything we do. So thank you for having me on for this one. It was awesome. Yeah, I think the reason why people download it so much is I think there's still such a need for enablement just in general to upskill in the stakeholder management space. And I think if you're an enabler, it is worth always sharpening your axe on that front. And because it is so, so important, enablement is such a change management discipline and not being able to engage stakeholders effectively is so, so important. And 
I absolutely love this episode. I've actually listened to it a few times now, just because there are so many great insights. One of the key features, which I'll also talk about in a second, of why I think this episode was also so great was because you have shared so many insights of your experience and real-world examples, which is always something that adds incredible amounts of value in those episodes. So definitely not an episode to be missed if you haven't listened to it already. Number three, there you are again, Dev McDermott. You are absolutely dominating the top 10 but this time, it was a panel episode with Georgia Watson. Georgia from IBM, previously located in the Middle East, but now she has relocated back to Australia, to Melbourne. We had a great discussion around sales onboarding and your experience on that front. Georgia, more from a enterprise point of view. So obviously, having worked for IBM for years now, she had that background. And you, Devin, from a startup point of view, Lots of great insights into how onboarding programs can be structured, the different sort of approaches, where they overlap, what you can learn from other approaches if you're an enterprise, what you can learn from startups and the other way around. So really great discussion and was also the first and so far only panel discussion that we had on the State of Sales and Aim and podcast. I think it's worth revisiting that sort of format again, Devin, yeah. if you're keen to add another episode to the top 10, I'm sure you can work something out. You know I'm here for it, Felix. <laughs> That's right. I've got you on speed dial anyway. I'll let you know once that is in the pipeline. But on number two, we have Aaron Evans from the UK speaking about self-methodologies. And this is obviously something that is really heavily focused on. He produces a lot of content on that front. And I would also encourage anybody who doesn't follow Aaron yet to follow him and also check out his YouTube channel which is great. He produces a lot of video content specifically around self-methodologies. Lots of good stuff there if you want to upskill on that front. Great discussion all around. Highly recommend checking that one out. And then on number one, the most downloaded episode was also one of the first ones. And I believe people were so curious to hear all about this organization because they have been so prominent, especially during the pandemic, which was DocuSign, my old colleague, Matthew Dean worked with me in a business that I previously ran. He works now at DocuSign, and he was speaking about how DocuSign prepared their sales team for hypergrowth during the pandemic. And he provided some great insights into what that looked like from a sales enablement point of view and specifically some of the things that he did during the pandemic. So very interesting case study there. Yeah, that's the top 10 most downloaded episodes of the State of Sales Enablement podcast for you guys. Please make sure to subscribe to the FFWD newsletter where we will share all the links to the resources that we mentioned here. Now, just a change of pace. We have a couple of research reports, Devin. Tell us all about it. What's the first one up? Oh, you know I love a research report. So the first one up is on skills-based hiring. So this is an awesome new LinkedIn report on a skills-first approach to hiring, which is apparently a very hot topic right now. It's actually even the theme of this month's TD Magazine, which I've not yet read, but it's on deck for this week. So super hot topic, very timely. But if you remember, Felix, a few episodes ago, we spoke about a report on L&D trends for 2023. And one of those featured trends was a move towards a skills-first organization and skills-first hiring, and how these skills-based organizations are 
more agile and adaptable to change, and they're better able to attract and retain top talent. So this LinkedIn report, which is titled Skills First, Reimagining the Labor Market and Breaking Down Barriers, a very powerful title, presents a new perspective on today's job market by focusing on skills rather than the traditional qualifications that we're all very used to and very comfortable with. So the report highlights the need for businesses to prioritize skills-based hiring practices to address existing barriers and challenges that exist within the job market. So the report states, and, and I'll give you a quick quote, a skills-first model to pinpoint new talent and grow existing talent is more equitable and efficient way of doing things. It will not only open more doors for women, people without bachelor's degrees, and workers of all ages, but it will also help them stay engaged. All things that we know to be true, right? So this is an approach to hiring or even internal mobility that's based on skills and abilities rather than pedigree, right? And it represents a fundamental paradigm shift in how we think about and approach talent management. So it challenges the traditional idea of organizing roles and responsibilities solely around job titles, which again is what we're all very used to and very comfortable with. But instead, it breaks those things down, focusing on projects, engagements, and tasks based on specific competencies that are required to accomplish each of those things. This all sounds wonderful. I'm very excited about it. But this approach is actually, as I said, quite different from what we're used to. So in a company that embraces a skills-first approach, rather than hiring employees for a fixed position, they actually assemble their teams based on the skills needed for a particular project or initiative. So these teams can be formed by leveraging existing in-house talent, which is always a great decision, or bringing in outside experts who possess those, you know, very specific competencies or skills that are required to complete the task or complete the project. If you ask me, which you did technically, the time is right for companies to consider really leaning into this approach with so many organizations, as we've seen, working with smaller staffs, fewer resources, and sometimes hiring freezes, right? So this approach is going to allow organizations to be way more flexible and agile, making it easier to quickly adapt to changing business needs and to leverage the expertise of a more diverse range of folks that are already a part of your organization. On top of that, the benefits yield a significant amount of opportunity for employees, not just for businesses. So these skills-first organizations need to provide a culture of continuous learning and development, meaning that employees that are in seat are encouraged and sometimes required to acquire new skills and grow professionally, which paves the way for a much more resilient and in turn, much more adaptable workforce. So as we're all aware, traditional hiring relies on, usually relies on those formal qualifications, which is not always an indicator of someone's actual abilities or their potential. This approach, is, as I've seen, can be exclusionary for candidates who may have the relevant skills to do the job, but again, don't have that pedigree that we've come to expect. This is also, if we're thinking about it in context of enablement, it's germane to the conversations that we've had about sales enablement practitioners needing to have carried a bag. It's not always apples to apples when it comes to having the right skills or job experience and the ability to do a specific job. So the LinkedIn research implies that this shift towards skills-based hiring can really have a fairly profound impact on job seekers and on employers. So job seekers with diverse backgrounds or non-traditional career journeys will now have an opportunity to showcase their abilities and 
to compete with others on a level playing field, leaning into roles that they typically would have been passed over for. And so the good news from this report is that the data is already showing that there's been a shift to this more skills-first or skills-focused approach. So in the last year, more than 45% of hirers on LinkedIn explicitly use skills data to fill their roles. That's up 12% year over year. Roughly one in five job postings, which is 19% in the US, no longer requires degrees, and that's up 15% from 2021. For employers, this translates to a much bigger talent pool, discovering talent internally and actually being able to level up their diversity and inclusion practices. And not to put too fine a point on it, but according to this report, in jobs where women are underrepresented, the proportion of women in the talent pool would actually increase 24% more than it would for men. Interesting stat. So Becoming a skills-first organization requires an all-in approach that facilitates a culture of learning, a culture of development and growth, where companies build the infrastructure that is needed to support upskilling, cross-skilling, and reskilling as part of their enablement and L&D efforts. Now, as I said before, all of this sounds amazing. I'm very excited about it. But I've actually seen firsthand companies try to follow this approach, but without taking the time to actually map and match the skills to specific tasks and initiatives or provide the environment for real learning and growth to build the needed skills, but rather base some of the decisions to move people to different projects on gut instincts or results from one-off projects that have been completed. So to get it right, you need, or really your organization needs to be ready to make that organizational shift to become a skills-first business and have the right mechanisms and talent in place to support a robust learning strategy that we know is needed to make this work. The future of work, according to this report and TD Magazine and a number of other resources, is going to be all about organizations that connect skilled individuals to the projects and opportunities that need them. And these decisions will be fueled by data and analytics so companies can really match the right skills with those opportunities with laser-focused accuracy. So because of this, it's my belief, and of course, based on these findings, that skills-based organizations will greatly excel at managing their workforce and achieving their goals. I'd love to segue into our next article, which is a LinkedIn post from Andrew Barry on talent development being more valuable and impactful in talent acquisition. So I've been following Andrew and enjoying his content and podcast for quite a while now. And in all honesty, I am pretty obsessed with his focus on organizations really leaning into building a culture of continuous learning and development and the power that that can give an organization, as we just discussed via the LinkedIn report. The idea is that bringing in outside talent from other industries, instead of taking the time necessary to grow or upskill talent from within, isn't necessarily the shortcut to success that many organizations are looking for. And if it's anything, it's a quick and easy path to failure. So Andrew suggests that nurturing talent from within is the real golden ticket that so many companies ignore and that the key to success lies in fostering a learning culture where individuals can focus on building skills, upskilling, reskilling, which is the first step to becoming that skills-first organization. To support this theory, Andrew shares some examples of massive companies who brought in A-list talent from other companies to strategically, yet let's be honest, very quickly shepherd their organizations through major business transitions with terrible results in some cases. So 
He shared the story of Yahoo and Bed Bath and Beyond, which were definitely cautionary tales. And so you'd say, okay, well, we learned our lessons, right? We can't just bring in amazing leaders from other companies and expect them to change the world, but not because we still see companies doing this all the time, even on a smaller scale. So it's not just these massive companies. Oftentimes, startups will do the same and bring in a leader to either make a very massive shift or to replicate something that they've done in another company without taking into account that the shift that was made in that prior organization likely took quite a bit of time and a number of people to make it happen. So instead of just you know trying to bring in talent to change the world, Andrew recommends taking the time to build an organization that really fosters skill development and nurtures talent by providing time space, and resources to incubate and grow from within. I spend a little bit more time on that piece because this is the piece that can make this approach fail or make a skills-first or skills-focused organization fail. You have to allocate the time, the resources, the space, and the strategy for learning and development because we know it takes a tight strategy, organizational buy-in, and the thing most fast-paced startups hate to waste, time. Regardless of all this, Andrew advocates for creating an environment that supports this approach. I always like to be realistic. This is a journey that demands a collective commitment from everyone involved in the organization to ensure success. And this perspective showcases that success isn't about shortcuts or relying solely on those external credentials and wins. And as someone in the LinkedIn comment said, and I love this, one company's A player is another company's low performer, which is totally true. You can't just drop somebody into a business and expect them to, again, change the world. It's all about cultivating that culture that celebrates learning and growth. So for any organizations that might be listening to this that are looking to drive meaningful change, remember there are no shortcuts. Real transformation, it takes time, talent, and most importantly, skill and development. That was the skill segment. But Felix, I need to know, because you talk to a lot of companies, you talk to a lot of businesses. Have you ever worked with a skills-first organization? And do you think this shift in strategy and mindset could reshape the typical role or profile for an enablement practitioner? Yeah, from my experience, I think there's very few organizations that really have that focus. Yeah. I think experience and just the overall track record is still prioritized over a list of skills that could be taken as a foundation for hiring practices. I think for a lot of organizations, it's a massive change that needs to happen. It's a massive organization-wide change that would need to be managed and implemented. And I think a lot of organizations just put it in the too hard basket for now. But exactly. having said that, I think that approach is the right one to go. And if you believe that over time, the economy as a whole and organizations become more sophisticated in their approaches, I would think that sooner or later, this is where we'll end up. Not sure if that will be something that we see in our lifetime, you know, on a broader scale. Very true. But I do think that if you think about the skills in general, it does make sense to follow that approach. But it's not enough to just say, okay, now we hire for skills. Exactly. We create frameworks for every role within the organization, and then we hire accordingly. It also comes down to upskilling hiring managers, for example, to actually test for those skills during interviews, through behavioral questions, through exercises that can really allow people to showcase these skills and so on. You know, And I think at the moment, even somebody who might, a hiring manager who might be focused on hiring for skills, they basically have to do the 
analysis on there and look at the experience and say, okay, I believe that person might have acquired such and such skills or might bring such and such skills to the table if they're not specifically called out. When it comes to recruiters, internal recruiters and external recruiters, again, I think there's a high degree of specialization required for those recruiters right now to be able to identify certain skills and being able to call them out to the hiring manager. So I don't think a lot of them are quite there unless the recruiters are quite specialized. Now, regarding Andrew's comments, I don't necessarily agree that it's so black and white and that one approach is the right one over others. Yeah. Just in general, it makes sense for an organization to build that capability to create a learning culture and to elevate internal talent and allow them to grow into different roles. Yes, absolutely agree with that. But as you alluded to before, I don't think that's necessarily realistic for all organizations. Exactly. Big organizations, especially those listed on the stock market, have their own pressures. They need to deliver results fast on a quarterly basis to maintain shareholder trust and confidence. When it comes to small organizations, namely startups, they have their own pressures. If they are self-funded or bootstrapped, they just simply need to see results fast. Yeah. Sometimes, or most of the time, I would say, you just simply don't have that time to actually develop and grow talent until you see results. That's a luxury not every business can afford. And I think also, if you are funded, let's say you've raised a Series A funding round, I don't think a lot of investors would be on board with the notion that, okay, we take our time to develop talent until you see results. <laughs> exactly. You know, they just say, yeah, just rather spend that money on hiring the people that already have those skills and we can, they can hit the ground running and deliver those results straight away. So I do agree strategically long-term, it makes sense to build that capability and allow growth to happen where it is possible from a timing point of view, but I don't think it's necessarily realistic for all businesses. And I appreciate the examples that he mentions there around organizations that have followed that approach of actually acquiring certain skills externally to introduce certain capabilities to their business. But I do also think there's just as many, if not more, examples of organizations that have done that successfully and actually introduced yes. transferable skills externally. I've seen people join organizations to introduce certain skills in different industries and has worked perfectly fine and they have been very successful. So couldn't agree more. As always, the answer is depends, unfortunately. It's so true. It is so situational. I love the examples that you shared as well. There is no one size fits all for sure. That's right. We have the job market update. Stephanie Zorabian keeps on doing her thing, updating that Stephanie Zorabian job board now in collaboration with the Sales Enablement Society and Paul Butterfield. So as always, really good stuff there. Way more remote and hybrid roles out there than on-site roles, which is always great to see. So lots of opportunity there, especially for enablers that might be looking for roles in a broader geo, even roles not only in North America, but also a couple of listings from i saw one from sydney actually all right which is great to see uk so if you're a hiring manager please make sure to keep on sending those jobs to stephanie she will curate them and generate lots of interest for you in the enablement community and if you're an enabler looking for a job please make sure to check out that job board and support stephanie on that front just on that note, in terms of developing yourself, looking for your next gig, I also want to call out 
the building blocks of sales enablement learning experience, which I mentioned earlier that I have created together with Mike Kunkel based on his best-selling book. This learning experience is designed for enablers to create a more sophisticated approach and maximize the business impact that they are able to achieve. We have over four hours of video content breaking down all aspects of enablement that will help you to really elevate your game and increase the maturity levels of your organizations. 15 performance levers that we talk about, including areas like buyer acumen, buyer engagement content, sales training, sales methodology, sales manager enablement, which is a one of the most watched lessons of the course as well. And we have a bunch of templates that we also offer as part of this, which makes it easy for you to really transfer those learnings into your day-to-day -day work. We have weekly group coaching calls, which will help us to really provide tailored advice and help you to navigate life challenges or also to clarify certain concepts as part of that course. On top of that, if you complete the quizzes that are attached to those lessons, you also receive a certificate that you can also use to apply for your next enablement gig. We offer a 50% discount for any unemployed enablers, an offer that a lot of enablers have already taken advantage of. And we also had a bunch of enablers finding roles on the back of some of the things that I have learned as part of the course and they've used as part of the application process. And on top of that, we also offer a 30% end of financial year discount now to anybody buying the course. So if you have previously thought about getting involved, becoming a member and upping your enablement game, now is a really good time to actually save on those plans and join the community that we have built around this proven body of knowledge. If you're interested, please make sure to check out the building blocks of sales enablement. If you have any questions about it, please also make sure to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Moving on to one of our new staples or relatively new staples <laughs> of this show is the AI segment. Well, there's a bit of concerning news looming, Devin. What's in store for us? So, Felix, I hope this is okay, but I want to call this new section of Team Eyes the AI buzzkill because <laughs> it's going to get a little bit dark today. But this is the reality of the world we live in. The article that we're going to look at is called AI Poses Risk of Extinction. This begins by summarizing an open letter signed by over a thousand industry leaders from OpenAI. Google DeepMind and other AI research groups calling for a moratorium in the development of highly advanced AI systems until we can better understand the risks involved. It emphasizes that AI technology poses a significant threat to humanity comparable to pandemics and even nuclear wars. Okay, let's take a second to talk about some of the dangers of AI that are called out in this article. So these include the potential for AI to become too powerful and have the ability to control us, the creation of autonomous weapons without human control, and the risk of widespread unemployment as machines replace human workers. Some of our biggest fears just captured right there. So what's really interesting, though, is that Many leaders in the industry, despite being in a very competitive race for AI dominance themselves, have expressed concerns about the associated risks and are advocating for stricter regulation when it comes to AI. That said, there are certainly differing opinions on the scope of potential threats. So some folks still believe that it's just way too early for AI to be an existential danger, and they're much more concerned about the immediate issues like biased or incorrect responses from the various platforms. On the other hand, 
Some believe that AI is advancing too quickly or has already matched or surpassed human performance in some areas, raising concerns about a more sentient artificial general intelligence or something called AGI. The concept of AGI sparks debates about how close we are to achieving such advanced capabilities. And this was my first time learning about AGI. So finally, in this article, they call for a more thoughtful and cautious approach to development, and they emphasize the importance of considering the potential risks in the present, not the future. So real talk, you know that I love ChatGPT. I love Google Bard. But believe me, we have an imperative to start thinking about and mitigating AI risks before proceeding too far with its evolution. As we've discussed right here on this podcast, AI is so powerful and responsible advancement and adoption is crucial. So we have to put up the guardrails to ensure that it benefits humanity and doesn't actually pose a threat that was flagged in this article. So I think one thing we can agree upon is debate over the potential risks of AI is likely to continue. And I, for one, am very much looking forward to seeing how the conversation evolves. So, Felix, I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on this. Are the authors of the open letter right to be concerned about these potential, you know, catastrophic risks of AI? Or are they being alarmist? And in your opinion, this is a three-parter, what are the biggest risks that you think come along with AI? Yeah, I think they're not being alarmist. I think if you look at any sort of research that's being published and opinions from leaders in that space, they all agree that the dangers of an AI are looming. And the fact that AI is exponentially improving just by design means that it will become so much smarter so quickly that we won't see it coming when it becomes dangerous. So I don't think that you can start the discussion around putting guardrails around it early enough, especially considering the way governments operate. They're always slow to actually introduce new laws. Typically, it's reacting to things, to bad things most of the time. Something bad has to happen before politicians feel safe enough to actually make those calls and introduce those legislations. You see that across all kinds of different areas. After 9-11, people had to take their shoes off. Security measures had to be introduced and so on. So I think there's so many different examples of it. And I do think governments need to change the way they operate and think about technology just in general to be on the front foot. We've also seen that with big tech, like a lot of legislation around corporate governance, even tax laws have not been updated in lockstep with the development of the tech industry. And if governments don't change their ways quickly enough on that front, I think there's a real danger in AI being abused and misused and it's just being too late for governments to actually intervene before the horse is bolted. And from my point of view, you may think about the Chinese government what you like, but one thing that they really get right is reacting to technology advancements very quickly. And they've already introduced legislation around AI. For example, one of the things that is now a law in China is that any sort of content that is being generated with AI has to be called out and watermarked as being AI generated, ah. which is to prevent 
misinformation, which is quite funny when you think about what's going in China. But <laughs> yeah. I hope I'm not blacklisted now by the Chinese government <laughs> after those comments. But they really have identified that there can be an issue and they've really been on the front foot. And I think Western governments have to adopt the same thing. In terms of the actual dangers, I think right now with generative AI, it is not general enough and not independent enough to actually make decisions for us to really be in danger. It's a powerful tool that is not even used to its full potential by most people. But if we think about AI actually making autonomous decisions and being able to solve problems, impacting the real world quickly and autonomously, I think that's when it becomes dangerous. Yeah. When you pose a challenge to AI and AI has the capability to actually attempt to solve this problem by itself and then also do the things in the real world that are required to solve that problem. Yeah. There's always that example of autonomous cars, self-driving cars. They're speeding towards a group of people and they have to decide whether it makes sense to sacrifice three people or five people, what sort of people they're seeing and so on, you know. Those sort of decisions, those sort of ethical considerations is just something that need to be built into AI. And I don't think at this stage there's anything done around that. So I'm all for government intervention on that front. And I am looking forward and I'm really interested in seeing what's going to happen on that front in the near future. Same here. And speaking of self-driving cars, I was just in Arizona and I saw the Waymo self-driving cars all over town. And mm. I am not yet ready to experience self-driving cars. So, yeah. <laughs> Very good. That's already too much for me. But <laughs> now, okay, positive turn on AI in our next report. Yep. The BCG report. This was a fun one. So this report is from the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, and it provides a valuable overview of the general thoughts, sentiment, and potential impact of AI on employees and the workplace. This is all the good stuff that AI can do and what we can do to build our skills. So in my opinion, this report can definitely serve as a great resource for businesses that are looking to understand how AI can potentially change the way work is done and how they can take steps to empower their employees to really harness the positive power of AI. So some context. BCG conducted a survey of 13,000 people from a variety of industries and companies to understand their perspectives on the adoption of AI in the workplace. So the survey looked to understand general interest, thoughts, emotions, and fears amongst a range of professionals. And this included executive leaders, middle management, and frontline employees. So findings in this report, again, are going to help our businesses to make better decisions about how to adopt and use AI in the workplace. And again, for our teams on the ground, can help employees to understand the potential of what AI can do and the impact it can have on their jobs so that they can better prepare for the changes that are coming their way. Some of the more interesting findings, and there's a ton of great insights here. This is one that's definitely worth clicking into and reviewing in detail. The use of AI in the workplace is growing rapidly, jumping from 22% in 2018 to 50% in 2023. Generative AI that we all know and love is becoming increasingly popular. So 46% of the respondents said that they've experimented with it, while 27% say that they use it regularly. However, 
there is a significant gap in adoption between leaders and employees or frontline employees, with 80% of leaders saying that they use generative AI regularly compared to only 20% of frontline employees. I have thoughts about that, which we'll talk about. But respondents are also concerned about the potential for AI to be used irresponsibly. So 68% said they're worried that AI will be used to discriminate against certain groups of people, which we also saw come up in the article we discussed just a second ago. But 71% of respondents believe that the reward outweighs the risk when it comes to leveraging AI in the workplace. Regardless, workers want employers to take steps to ensure that AI is used responsibly. So 79% of respondents said that they support some form of regulation. And most employees, though, are generally very optimistic and curious about AI and feel that it will save them time and allow for more innovation in their roles. One area that was covered in the report that I was most interested in was the companies who encourage the adoption of AI among their team members. So the report showed that these companies are more likely to see positive outcomes. For example, AI has helped to improve decision-making, it increased productivity, and reduced costs. The report also found that companies who encourage adoption are more likely to have a positive culture around AI. So this means employees are more likely to feel comfortable using AI and are more likely to trust that it's being adopted responsibly. The report concludes by providing three key recommendations for leaders as they navigate their organization through the AI revolution. First is to ensure that there are spaces for responsible AI experimentation. Next is to invest in regular upskilling, one of our themes of the day, to ensure people are building their skills and leveraging AI appropriately. And finally, prioritizing a responsible AI program. So overall, the report finds that AI is having a significant impact on the workplace and that employees are both excited about the potential benefits of AI and they're also concerned about the potential risks. But there's so much more within this that I just want to dig into and even just see in my organization and for some of my peers and friends how their organizations are approaching AI. I've seen very mixed opinions. So like I'm using it regularly with my team. I want to make sure we are on the cutting edge. We're leveraging it appropriately and we're using it to create momentum on our small but mighty enablement team. But I definitely see a hesitation from leadership to adopt it too formally. I think people are still, and this isn't specific to my organization at all, but I think people are seeing it as more like, oh, it's fun. And, you know, yeah, you're going to use it to write emails and get lazy, but they're not really thinking about it as an incredibly powerful tool to create efficiencies in their business and to drive forward momentum. So we'd love your, your hot take, Felix, on some of the insights here and what your thoughts are in really empowering teams within an organization to use AI. Yeah, I think it comes down to how formally you actually approach workflows and whether you have systems in place that can be supported by AI. I think, especially in the startup world where there is a lot of improvisation happening and oftentimes a lack of process, which is just due to the fact that things are being worked out and you have to be nimble and agile. I think in those sort of scenarios, the ad hoc usage has kind of the inbuilt notion of probably a lack of measurement around the positive impact. It is really hard to actually quantify the benefits if you only use it occasionally or informally. I think the more process you have in place, the more you will have a framework available to actually identify where AI can add value and where it can be used to actually, as you said, accelerate processes, save costs, and really add value ultimately. If you're in one of those organizations, I think looking at your processes that are in place, the systems that are driving 
the outcomes for your department. It really makes sense to then identify the components of your system to where AI can be used and implemented. And I think the more structure there is, the easier it is to actually identify where AI can add value. Why do you think there's such a big difference between the adoption between frontline workers and managers? Yeah, I think, and this is, I'm just kind of spitballing, but I think it's because there's a fear for frontline workers to admit that they're using this tech, that it's maybe cheating a little bit at your job or to make your employer think that you are not working as hard as you could. So that's my thing, because like, I am a leader of a team and I want my team using it and we're, you know, training on it. They're making me smarter and better at it. But I think there's a fear to say, hey, boss, I've been using this tool to propel my program forward, to build resources, to expedite talk tracks, to facilitate workshops with the team. I think there's a fear that folks maybe look down upon for using this rather than just go figure it out. But to me, it's like, I always want to work smarter, not harder. I never want to recreate the wheel. And so I think it could be tied to that. I have no data to prove it, but it's just something that I've noticed. Even when I approach the subject of AI with leaders or friends, it's kind of like a joke. Like, oh yeah, yeah, you're using it to cheat at your job or whatever. But I think it's so great. It's very powerful. So I think there may be hesitation on that front. I think it's similar to back in the day when Google came up, right? Yes, yes. And you didn't have to know the encyclopedia by heart. <laughs> you know, you could just look up things when you need it. Yeah. I think it's a similar notion, right? I mean, I wasn't part of the workforce when Google came up, but I'm pretty sure back then there were also people that thought it feels like cheating using Google when you need information quickly. And I think we're at a similar point in time where you just need to overcome that and just recognize that it's a tool that you use as a co-pilot and you're still the decision maker. You're still the person that actually uses the tool to drive outcomes. The tool doesn't do the work for you. You still need to edit content. For example, if you use ChatGPT, you still need to have the relationships in place to support the communication that you are maybe driving with ChatGPT. But I think humans are still in charge of their own destiny on that front. And I think it's silly to assume that using AI replaces that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Next up, we have a couple of events that we want to call out. First of all, the Enablement Hackathon Tour that is organized by the Enablement Squad and Sales Enablement Society. It's a great series. I heard about it for the first time when I had Stephanie and Matt from the Enablement Squad on the podcast. I think it's a great idea and a really great innovation to not only bring the enablement community together, but also to use everybody's big brains to solve problems collectively and to create a fun environment to actually solve real-world business problems. That tour is coming up. The next stop for the Enablement Hackathon is actually Salt Lake City, so the home of Paul Butterfield, I believe. Then it will be in Chicago, Boston, San Diego, and then even London, UK. So lots of stops there. And I would encourage everybody who is interested in connecting with the community and participating in those fun exercises of actually solving those problems collectively to get involved and connect with the community and the Enablement Hackathon Tour. The other event that's coming up, which is actually online, which is something that is hosted by the Sales Enablement Collective, is a fireside chat that talks about how to get hired in sales enablement. So again, a hot topic, considering the amount of layoffs and job seekers that are out there. So anybody who is currently looking for work or is looking for their next big gig, 
I would also encourage to tune into that one on June 29th on LinkedIn. Next up, I wanted to just quickly cover a book that I have been listening to. As you know, Devin, I'm really big on the audiobooks oh, right now. The best. Yeah. Hashtag 1.5 speed. It's awesome. <laughs> and one of those books that I've been digging into was What Got You Here Won't Get You There, How Successful People Become Even More Successful. And I think that one is a really interesting one for enablers for a couple of reasons. It's first of all interesting from a self-reflection point of view. So the book is written by an executive coach that works with very successful people that just want to take things to the next level. And he is really good at identifying the sort of behaviors that are people's worst enemy, people being their own worst enemy and really stopping themselves from succeeding. And there's a bunch of patterns that he calls out, which I will mention in a minute. But I think for enablers, this book is really a must read because it really helps you to self-reflect on some of the behaviors, especially if you are a leader and you are managing a team, but also from a stakeholder management point of view, which is obviously really important. And even if you're a team of one, you still have to showcase leadership, obviously, within your organization. And a lot of the sort of patterns that he calls out in this book is something that is worth a while reflecting on. But then also from an enablement point of view, if you think about leaders within the organization. So we talk about sales managers a lot and the fact that becoming a sales manager doesn't necessarily mean that you just keep on practicing what has made you previously a great salesperson. You just show everybody how they can be just as awesome as you are at being a salesperson. But it's also about people management and people leadership. And I think... There's a shortfall oftentimes in the sort of skills that are being taught on that front within organizations. I certainly have been very grateful in the past for any sort of leadership training that I've received, which has also opened my eyes to the sort of things that I have done that might not necessarily be as productive in leading teams. And what Marshall Goldsmith calls out in this book are just a few things that I just want to go through quickly. The number one thing that he mentions, which is really something that is a trap that a lot of people fall into that have been successful is that they overestimate the role of certain behaviors in their success. So that means that they think that because they, for example, have been very rude or very abrupt, that they have been as successful as they have been. A famous example that is often mentioned on that front is Steve Jobs. A lot of people think Steve Jobs has been a great corporate leader because he has been treating people the way he has been treating them. If you think about the concepts mentioned in this book, that uh, really makes you think that he has been such a great corporate leader, despite the fact that he's been treating <laughs> people that way. Because you really have to reflect on the behaviors that are productive versus non-productive and really remove yourself from the assumption that everything you do really contributes to your success. So self-awareness is really key. It is really important to identify the behaviors that are positive versus negative. Then the other thing, which is something that is quite obvious to enablers, but might not necessarily be obvious to everybody within the organization, especially if, as we discussed earlier, there is not a learning culture. It is really worth noting that behavioral change is possible. So the author really emphasizes that it's possible to change behaviors and improve and if there's an active effort from the person wanting to improve and also reinforcement from everybody surrounding them, 
that includes also, as he mentioned, apologizing and telling everybody that you want to improve and that you really have good intentions, which really goes a long way if you are a leader and you have previously practiced behaviors that were not necessarily productive and may have also been burning a lot of bridges. So apologizing goes a long way. The other concept that he also mentions was the feed forward. So instead of focusing on feedback about the past and really dwelling on those sort of negative experiences, it is really important and the author advocates for the concept of feed forward, where you focus on the future and seek advice on how to improve. I think that is also psychologically a very interesting paradigm shift and a different lens to use on your journey to improvement. It's not only always looking back and think, oh, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, and here's all the evidence, and here are all the people that have noticed all the things that I have done, but rather shifting that perspective and saying, okay, I want to become a better person. I want to become better at navigating certain challenges. What can you recommend for me to do better in the future? I think that is also, from an enablement point of view, a really interesting concept to consider if we think about call recordings, for example, yeah. uh, that cringy sort of situations where everybody's looking at your call recordings and everybody provides feedback on what went wrong. Yeah. I think setting that goal on the skills that you want to develop and really having everybody contribute to you embarking successfully on that journey can be really impactful, especially from a leadership point of view. And then, of course, he also mentions the importance of follow-up. So consistent follow-up is really necessary to ensure the success of a behavioral change. So coaching really comes to mind here. And the need for reinforcement is always something that is being talked about in the enablement community as well. So I think a lot of themes that enablers will be familiar with, but I think viewed through a lens of leadership development and I think very interesting to consider if you want to develop yourself and also if you want to adopt some of those sort of concepts and examples that are being talked about in order to develop the executive leadership maybe in your company, but also the sales managers across your sales team. So very interesting book, highly recommended. The audiobook version also has a really great narrator, which is always important. I want to ask you, Devin, also, do you find that the businesses that you have worked in in the past put enough emphasis on teaching leaders how to be good leaders? Like, do you think there's a lot of effort around that? Or is it more like this person is really good at their job? Let's give them a promotion, give them a team to manage and off you go. I think oftentimes it's the latter. And then once you do that and you have that model running where, again, your A players are now managing the team, about six months into that, usually three to six months in, you're like, wait a second, these folks don't have any leadership skills. We need to develop them. And then the leadership training emerges. So it doesn't usually happen in the ideal sequencing or, or the right order of operations, but I think it's folks are still defaulting to the, hey, you're a top performer. Let's just go and have you replicate that with no development or skill building to show them how to become an amazing leader. And, and you know, I've taken leadership training at a number of companies, big companies, startups, and I've been certified in leadership training, best practices, and I've built leadership training. But I think for so many companies, even when they do stand it up, it becomes sort of a box checking activity. Like, okay, everybody took their leadership training. We did it. Great job. Let's see the results roll in. And we all know as enablers, that's not how any of that works. So I think it, much like becoming a skills first organization, companies really need a clearly defined operating model, business expectations and norms, and have a, a plan to move beyond the, the classroom or, or virtual training for leadership to focus on true skill development, application, 
proficiency and assess how you're improving your leadership team's abilities. I think for so many startups, they start running engagement surveys and they're like, oh no, our leaders are failing. We need to develop them. So they whip up a program and again, react to that versus proactively developing a holistic program to drive meaningful change and build highly effective leaders. I think there's good things happening. There's more to be done in the space. And I also just bought the audiobook, So I will be listening to that this week. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Yeah, no, I fully agree. I think considering the impact and influence that leaders have that manage their team, somebody's work experience is so determined by the quality of the leadership they receive. I think it's worthwhile for companies to invest in that one and which make this book even more relevant, I believe. Devin, thank you so much for your great input and thoughts once again for this episode. We have to make this new panel episode happen. So I'm already uh, thinking about something. I've got a feeling it will have to do with AI, but we'll Ooh, see. We'll see. I'm here for it. Let's do it. <laughs> As always, for anybody who's interested in receiving all the resources that we have mentioned as part of this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the FFWD newsletter. We'll send that straight to your inbox. Thank you so much for joining once again. And if you have any questions or want to lead a follow-up discussion, please make sure to reach out to us. We're looking forward to seeing you on the next edition of This Month in Sales Enablement. Thank you so much, everybody. Bye-bye.